I love a good story, uh, especially a good true story, uh, which is, I think, really why I love history so much. If you know me, you know I'm a history buff. I read a lot of history, and I love, like, biographies, but I especially love autobiographies uh, because they're, they're just so powerful to, to you know, just to read about some amazing thing that happened or, or an amazing life lived. Um, and autobiographies are so powerful because they give you that firsthand, vivid, first-person account. Not just what happened, but, you know, what this person was feeling when they were going through it and what were their motives and, you know, how were they processing everything that was happening in their life. Um, and some of the most amazing books I've ever read are autobiographies or something like it. Um, I can remember one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in my life was um, back when I was 23, I lived in Europe for five months, and uh, I spent a good chunk of that living in Amsterdam and serving with a a Christian ministry there, and um, I read the diary of Anne Frank when I was there in Amsterdam. I had read it when I was back in, in, uh, you know, junior high or high school, and, you know, I read it back then like, okay, this is kind of interesting. It didn't really impact me at that age, or just maybe I wasn't that engaged with it, but I read it again as a young adult in Amsterdam, finished the book, and then literally walked down the street to the Anne Frank house, where she and her family hid from the Nazis for a couple of years. It was just this unbelievable experience of like, wow, just hearing her words about her experience, and then being in that space. And another one I've read uh, fairly recently in the last couple of years was um, 12 Years a Slave by Solomon Northup. Some of you may have seen the movie based on this book. Amazing story of this man who was born in the early 1800s in New York State. He was free, but on a trip to Washington, D.C., he was kidnapped, put on a ship, sent to New Orleans, where he was then sold into slavery and served uh, uh, as a slave for 12 years on these plantations before he was able to you know, secretly get word back to his family and, and arrange his rescue. And then he wrote about the whole experience. It's just an amazing um, account. And um, I think these sorts of uh, first-person autobiographical works really resonate with us because they're just, you know, we just see the experience. And I think this is why, for example, like presidential memoirs and things like that just tend to be bestsellers because we want to know what people were going through as they experienced life. Um, and I say all this because in the Gospel of John, which is what we're studying, and really all the Gospels, uh, all four Gospels, most of them would be more like biography. You know, it's sort of third-person narrative about Jesus, about what he said, about what he did, the things he taught. But in a few places, Jesus spoke extensively about himself, like kind of an autobiographical moment of giving himself, giving powerful testimony and insight into who he is, his character, his purpose, his mission. And today we're going to look at one of those. We're going to look at this autobiographical section, this moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus is speaking about himself. He's not giving us practical advice. He's just helping us grasp who he is. And I think on that note, it's important to realize there's this temptation for us when we read Scripture to want it all to be Proverbs. Like, we want it all to be, like, these quick, readily applicable, just nuggets of life, just get me through life, wisdom for life. And some of Scripture is that way, but most of it's not. Most of Scripture is not that way. Most of Scripture is describing who God is, His purpose, how He has acted in history, what His nature is. And, but the amazing thing is this— To understand who God is and to know him in relationship is actually the most practical thing you could ever do. 
in terms of your spiritual life and your spiritual growth, just growing in your relationship with him because that affects everything. Knowing who God is affects everything. It affects your view of the world, of yourself, of others, of your own future. I love the way John Piper puts it. He's an author, theologian. He said, um, people are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. So the, the, the more we look at Christ and who he is and, and grow in relationship with him, it, it just affects everything in our life. And uh, that's what we're going to do, do today is to hear Jesus tell his story about who he is and, and the fullness of his majesty. And um, we're going to get a really big picture of who Jesus is. Um, but before we read those words of Jesus's um, Uh, what he said about himself, I want to kind of set the stage because there was an incident in his ministry that that caused him to say what he said. Um, And we read about this in John 5. Jesus performed this miracle at this place called the Pool of Bethesda. This is an archaeological reconstruction of that. Um, Archaeologists have discovered this place. It was a real place in the first century, the Pool of Bethesda. And um, Jesus was there and he encounters a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. And we know um, from other historical sources that people hung out at the Pool of Bethesda who had various ailments um, or or disabilities or injuries or whatever. Um, And there was a legend that occasionally an angel would stir up the water and whoever jumped in the water first after the angel did that would get healed of whatever they had going on. And Jesus meets this man and the man says, well, I can never get in the water fast enough. And, you know, I've been paralyzed for 38 years. And, And Jesus heals him at this pool, and he says, get up, take your mat, and walk home, and the guy does. Now, on his way home, he encounters some of the religious leadership, um, and this is on the Sabbath when this happens, and the, the, the religious leaders, they confront him, and they go, hey, you're not supposed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. That's work. You can't do work on the Sabbath. You're breaking the law. Why are you doing this? And the man says to them, well, the guy who healed me told me to. Like, he, he healed me. They don't even care that the miracle happened, they care that he's breaking the rule. Because look at their response in, in John five twelve. They asked him, who's this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? They're not interested in, who's this guy who healed you? It's, hey, he said you could, that's the real controversy. The real story is you're breaking the rule. So eventually the guy talks to him. He, he finds out who Jesus is and he tells them. And they begin to target Jesus for breaking sabbath rules this is something that that you continually uh fought with them about or they fought with him about and then look at what it says in verse 16 to 18 so because jesus was doing these things on the sabbath the jewish leaders began to persecute him in his defense jesus said to them my father is always at his work to this very day and i too am working For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So so Jesus identifies himself publicly to these religious leaders as being God. He equates himself with God. And then he's going to jump off from here in the next verse to elaborate on all this about who he is, his nature. It's this autobiographical section. But it all started with this clash with the religious authorities about the Sabbath and breaking these rules and this miracle. 
But I think that question they asked him, the, the man who'd been healed, is, is relevant. You know, they said, who's this fellow who told you you could carry your mat on the Sabbath? Who is this guy? That's what they were asking. And I think Jesus is about to answer them in a lot of depth. And his answer of who he is was not just for those religious leaders. It's for us, too. Um, so if you have your Bible, turn to uh, John five nineteen. That's where we're going to dive in. Gospel of John, if you're not familiar with the layout of Scripture, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. Gospel of John, starting uh, chapter 5, verse 19. So again, this is Jesus talking about himself and who he is. Um, and he, he basically divides what he says into two sections. The first section is he makes several claims about himself, about his identity, who he is, his mission. And then the second part is he provides evidence for that. He, he provides substantiation for his claims, that his claims are true. So we're going to look at both. We're going to start uh, with the first section about, you know, who he, who he actually is. Now, I do want to kind of warn you for a second. This gets deep. I mean, Jesus is talking about his nature and identity. It gets kind of deep. So just stick with me. We're going to read through it. I'll have you highlight a few things. And then we're going we're gonna to look at three or four things that sort of rise to the surface, key ideas that Jesus wanted to know about himself. Um, so let's get into it. Verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Remember, the them is the religious leaders. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Highlight that. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, highlight this, the son gives life. To whom he is pleased to give it. Verse 22. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge. Highlight that. He has given him, Jesus, authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now, just to clarify, in John, doing what's good is having faith in Christ. Doing what's evil is rejecting Christ. So it's not saying if you, you know, were a highly moral person, you'll be saved, and if you weren't, you won't. Um, he's essentially saying those who have placed their faith in Christ and been saved will rise to live, and those who have rejected him will rise to be condemned. Verse 30, By myself I can do nothing, I judge only as I hear, and highlight this, my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So, there's a lot there, but I think there's several key ideas that Jesus was hovering around. 
Okay, so I want to pull those out. The first one is this. Jesus is one with the Father. He is one with the Father. This is the the thing that Jesus said that first got the authorities really riled up. Um, There's no daylight between the Father, the Creator, and Jesus. Jesus is not, you know, just some representative of God or like some moral teacher or philosopher who kind of hung hung around in first century Israel. He's not lesser than the Father. It's not like God the Father is really God and Jesus is sort of like his neighbor. No, Jesus is the same as God. He is one with the Father. He's on equal footing with the Father. Later in John, Jesus says this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what does that mean for us? It means that what Jesus says comes from the highest authority. The creator, the sovereign over the universe, knows us and cares about us. He knows what you need better than you know. But fear often drives us in this life. And we try to grasp onto control. We try to control every aspect of our life. We even try to control God. You know, like, okay, if I just behave this way, if I check all these boxes, if I, you know, try to live kind of a holy life and, you know, I'm a uh, you know, philanthropist or whatever, then, you know, maybe if I turn all those dials and pull all those levers, God will have to, like, give me what I want and bless me in my life. That's trying to manipulate God. We try to grasp onto control because of fear. But Jesus is one with the Father. This text means, in part, that we don't have to be ruled by fear. We can trust our lives and our futures in the hands of Jesus, in the hands of the Almighty. Now, we don't always understand why he does what he does. We don't have perfect understanding. We don't have God's mind. He won't always change our circumstances based on what we might ask. But we can trust that he loves us, he knows best, and he's with us, and he has the power to lead us through life. Jesus is one with the Father. The second key idea that that he wove throughout this is that Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus is the giver of life. We saw this in the first chapter of John. Here we see it again. Just as God created us in the first place, he gave us physical life, Jesus now also offers us spiritual rebirth, to be born again. And, and that rebirth is now, when we place our faith in Christ, it applies to our life now, but also points forward to life in eternity, the resurrection life. And so if we believe in Christ, if we trust him for salvation, if we give our life to him, as it said in the passage, we move from death to life. We are born again. And he gave his life to make that life possible. It costs something. But you and I didn't have to pay the cost. Jesus paid the cost. He gave his life to give us life. Jesus is the giver of life. The third key idea is this. Jesus is the just judge. He's the just judge. Now, this is a little bit um, out of sync with kind of popular notions about Jesus. There's There's a stereotype that's been around a long time that, you know, Old Testament God is like the mean God. He's the judging God. He's the wrathful God. And then Jesus is, you know, grace and love and acceptance. And, and it, um, those, those stereotypes are so common that often people feel like, gosh, am I, is this the same God? How can this be the same one? But Jesus said, I'm one with the Father. It's, he's the same. And we don't, we don't often think of Jesus as judge. That's not a role we typically 
ascribe to him as we just think about Jesus. Like he's a judge, but he is. But, but, but that divide between our kind of Old Testament, New Testament conceptions of, of God, um, you know, sort of the judging God and the love God, th- those are, that, that's an artificial distinction. That's not biblical because God's love and his justice always go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. They, they are fundamental to who he is. And the cross, you can think of as the intersection between his love and his justice. Both uh, his love and his justice are in view on the cross. In his justice, he punishes sin. In his love, he took on the punishment so that we didn't have to. We actually cannot really understand the depths of God's love for us if we're not also willing to see his uncompromising wrath against sin. And when we see his wrath against sin and the depth of that, then we see how great his love was to overcome that. And how Jesus gave his life, the greatest act of love, to spare us. Jesus says he is the just judge. That means he's, he's not a judge that's fickle and, and sort of, you know, treats people differently or, you know, his standard is sort of in flux. No, he determines what is right and wrong. He sees into our hearts. He determines where we stand. I think so often we think we can judge. Like, like we can judge where people are with God. And we can even uh, assess our own standing with God accurately. But, but, but we don't see into other people's hearts. And we're often not the best appraiser of ourselves either. You know, I think it must sadden God that many of us look on ourselves with fear and disappointment and anxiety. When in fact, Jesus looks at us and sees a precious child secure in his hands. Or, on the other hand, we sometimes look at ourselves as kind of having it all together. Like, yeah, I'm good. You know, I love Jesus and, you know, I serve a church. I'm good. Uh, and Jesus, the just judge, might look at us and say, well, there's some areas you can grow. So he's the just judge, not me, not you. He is. So Jesus is kind of speaking autobiographically, right? He's told us these three big ideas. He's one with the Father. He's the giver of life. He's the just judge. Now he's going to switch to the second section where he offers evidence for these claims. He's going to tell us, you know, essentially don't take my word for it. I mean, that's kind of something, right? <laughs> Jesus describes himself and then says, hey, don't, you know, don't take my word for it. I got the receipts here. So we're going to walk through this next section and see uh, what Jesus says here, starting in verse 31. Jesus continues, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. So highlight the first phrase there. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now remember, he's talking to Jewish leaders who are like biblical scholars, experts in the Old Testament. And, you know, Jesus is basically referring to the Old Testament here because in Deuteronomy and other places, it says a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in the Jewish law, there's God's scripture, God's word, the Old Testament. It's like you've got to have multiple witnesses when you're trying to establish something. And so Jesus is basically going to operate under that. Okay, I've said this stuff about myself, but who else is corroborating this? And he continues, verse 32, there's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Highlight that. There's another who testifies in my favor. Most scholars believe what Jesus is referring to here was the moment of his baptism. Um, When he was baptized, we see it in Luke 3, 
uh, it says this, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now this happened in public. And so this is the first witness Jesus calls. He's just made all these claims about himself. And he says, the father, my father testified that I am who I say I am. He testifies in my favor. Now let's keep reading. Verse 33. You, he's talking to the religious leaders, had sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Highlight that John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp and burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So he's talking about John the Baptist. He's saying John the Baptist was a prophetic witness to the truth of Jesus' claims. John was out there preaching before Jesus even arrived, saying the Messiah is coming. He's going to be like this. You should watch for him. And now Jesus' ministry looks very much like what John had predicted. So John is another witness in favor of Jesus' claims about himself. But he continues, verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, highlight that, the very works that I am doing, they testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Highlight that. The very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. So he gives two more witnesses in that little passage. He says, the very works I am doing. In other words, the miracles. The miracles are a testimony to the truth of his claims. He just, he just healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda. He says, I just did that. That is a testimony to the truth that I am who I say I am. And then finally, he says the scriptures, the Old Testament, you know, that for centuries they they predicted and prophesied who Jesus would be. And now here he is living out exactly what the prophets said he would be like. So he's listed all of these supporting uh, witnesses to the truth of his claims about himself. And then he closes out, starting in verse 41, with an indictment on these leaders who, who are challenging Jesus and saying, how dare you make these claims? Look what he says in verse 41. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So you see Jesus' biggest criticisms of these people here, the religious leaders. They don't have the love of God in their hearts. They know the scriptures backwards and forwards. They are biblical scholars and they're completely missing him and they're completely missing the boat. They're obsessed with the letter of the law and they miss God in the process. But Jesus argues they love the law so much they're not even really paying attention to it because in the Old Testament 
it talked about the Messiah and his nature and what he would be like, and now he's here, and they don't even believe it. And by the way, the Old Testament law said, love God and love others as yourself, and they're not doing that. They're hard-hearted. So Jesus offered all this substantiation for who he is. You know, God had testified at his baptism, this is my son. The miracles he did, John the Baptist testified. The scriptures themselves predicted his ministry and his arrival. And so all of this, the key point I want us to get, is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So he just described who he is, who he claims to be. And then he provided all of this evidence for that. His life and ministry happened in the open And the truth of his claims were substantiated in many ways. So I just want to wrap up by remembering something. That the most powerful way that Jesus was proven right was still in the future at the time he had this discussion. The most powerful proof he was who he said he was, was his public trial, his public crucifixion, his public burial, and his public resurrection. They were the definitive proof that everything he said about himself was true, that he was the giver of life, the just judge, one with the Father, all of these claims about himself, the Messiah, the Son of God. His death and resurrection proved all of his claims to be true. And then a couple decades later, After his death and resurrection, the message of Christianity, the gospel, begins to spread out. And the Apostle Paul takes the message of Christ for the first time to Athens, the intellectual heart of the first century world. And Paul stands in front of this prestigious council of Greek scholars and philosophers who'd never heard of Jesus. And look how he puts it as part of what he said to them. He says, he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. That's Jesus. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. His resurrection was the proof that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus was who he claimed to be. And that should comfort us. He's one with the Father. He is God Almighty. He is the giver of life. He is the just judge. And, and, and what does all that mean? If he's all of those things that he claimed to be and all that's true, it means we can trust him. It means we can trust him with our lives. He loves us. He has the power to hold us in his hands. He promises us life. He promises us his presence. We can trust him. Jesus is one with the Father. God does not change. He is reliable. I love the way James puts it in James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Jesus is one with that Father, and he does not change like shifting shadows. His love is constant. His power is constant. His justice is constant. His presence is constant. And if we really hear Jesus' words about himself and prayerfully internalize them, we will find ourselves comforted, resting in the knowledge of who he is and the fact that because of his sacrifice, we are his.